You know you're culturally in a church in the northern suburbs when we can't figure out whether to clap on one and three or two and four when you send the clap. I was like, wow, that was a, that was a train wreck. We, <laughs> that's good. That's good. We don't have to clap. We can clap different. Um, we are, uh, by the way, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the elders here at Renovation. Um, we're going to take some time this morning, get into the word. Uh, we've been walking through, for those of you who have been with us, we've been walking through the book of Exodus for, for a while. We took a little break and did a series on salvation, and now we're back into the book of Exodus. And this is kind of a neat narrative in the book of Exodus. And if you have your Bibles, um, you can go right to Exodus 24. It's going to be on the screen as well. Or if you got an iPhone, just open the app, which is kind of what we do now. And let's read Exodus 24 together. We're going to read the whole chapter, Exodus 24. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. Those are Aaron's kids. And worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all of the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, twelve pillars, and according to the twelve tribes of Israel, and he sent young men of Israel, of the people of Israel, who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood, put it in the basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood, threw it on the people, and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Aaron's kids, and 70 of the elders, because I'm not going to say their names right, 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven, for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men, of the people of Israel, they, behold, they beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone, which the law in, in the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. What a scene. I think it's hard for us to depict in our minds what this must have 
look like, what it must have been like. I think we're a little better at it now in the, in the age of CGI, right? Um, we can kind of think of some sort of a motion picture that could depict this. The old school, like Charlton Heston version, probably didn't do it justice. How many of you guys agree? How many of you guys have seen that lately? Wow. You go back and look at that and you're like, that was rough. Like <laughs> there, was, there was, I'm sure, some brilliant acting, but the special effects were no good. I was thinking about this in the context of movies for some reason. And I thought through like the 10 common themes in every motion picture, right? I think every movie you see, and, and I'm someone who loves movies. Anybody with me? I love a good movie. Last, yesterday, I was sitting around at my house. Um, we had just done, what did we do yesterday? We went uh, antiquing, believe it or not. I feel like... Uh, yeah, thanks, Bill. <laughs> I appreciate that, Bill. I feel like Will Ferrell in a particular movie. We went antiquing, um, and, and we got back, and I recognized that this one particular shop, Dan can't stop laughing. Literally, I said to my wife, we walked out of the shop, I said to my wife, if I was to die and go to hell, that's it, right there. That shop <laughs> would be my personal hell. But we, so we get back, and I'm, I'm watching for probably the 50th time, The Last Samurai. How many of you guys have ever seen that movie with Tom Cruise? And you see these themes that are drawn out of this movie that I can't help but watch. I know what's going to happen, but you see the troubled guy, the soldier um, who had, um, had, had in his past had these awful events in his life as he was under the command of a, really an evil lieutenant colonel who forced him to kill innocent uh, Native Americans and, and now he's struggling in his own personal life but he's this warrior and he ends up in Japan training this army and just the themes that arise of this man overcoming his personal, his personal demons and trying to overcome and, and, and get to a place of healing. And I begin to think through in movies, what are, these, what are these themes? What are these common themes that we see in every movie? And really, there's 10 of them. You got good versus evil, right? That's always a common theme in motion pictures today. You know, Harry Potter, Star Wars, you know, there's good, there's evil, and good's going to overcome the bad. You got, you know, love conquers all. You know, was it Titanic, <laughs> I guess, would be one. Uh, the notebook, I don't know, you know, all I can picture is, is, uh, is Leonardo DiCaprio floating away frozen and finally sinking while she's on the, on the floating bed headboard. And I'm just thinking to myself, let the guy on the headboard, right? <laughs> Can't you move over and let him up on the headboard? Um, triumph over adversity, you know, I love that Disney movie, Remember the Titans. How many of you guys could watch that a thousand times? Like, just triumph over adversity, um, you know, something like The Blind Side. You got the individual versus society, you know, something like a, like a Schindler's, Schindler's List where someone goes through real personal sacrifice to overcome what's happening in, in their surroundings. You got the battle movie, one of my favorite movies of all time, Braveheart, right? I just want to do push-ups. I love the thing. You know, you get Braveheart or 300, which, you know, which just abs everywhere, right? That, um, Death is a part of, of life is, is one of the themes of movies, something like Pay It Forward or, or Steel Magnolias. Um, didn't see that. Um, <laughs> after I admitted to going antiquing, I got to say, I haven't seen Steel Magnolias. Revenge movies, right? Mean Girls, Carrie, Cape Fear. You got the, the idea of loss of innocence in something like Juno or Sixteen Candles. Man versus Nature. 
the idea like those, those apocalyptic movies sometimes, Armageddon or, or Twister or Day After Tomorrow. And then you got the idea of man versus himself, right? That theme always comes through in motion pictures today, which are so much a part of our life. Man versus himself would be, you know, I can think of The Godfather, right? You see the struggle in Michael Corleone, and, and I love those movies. Even three. I like three. Um, or Wall Street or a movie like that. And what I recognize among us is it is so much a part of our culture, these themes, these things that we connect with, these things that we resonate with. And I think, I think what we do sometimes is because they're so powerful and they're, you know, frankly, these myths or these themes or these things that resonate with us that we see in motion pictures, you know, we could really never tell a story in the way that, that it happens in Hollywood, could we? I mean, they have incredible capability now to communicate a story and depict it in such um, incredible, real-time, almost like emotional, um, you know, full CGI, full special effects, um, incredible acting, incredible, incredible things that go into visually stimulating and emotionally, and you got the music behind it. And, and we as human beings in our culture today, we sit and we watch this stuff, and we resonate with it, and I love it. It connects us to truth sometimes, or it connects us to myth. And I think sometimes, as, as Christians even, or as human beings, we begin to think of these depictions of these themes that motivate us and inspire us as, as what is the, the, the co-equal myth that I'm going to connect my life to and go after and, and live for. Some of it is so much connected for us in our entertainment because it's become such a huge part of our life. And I think I want to say that in the context of this passage because when we read something like this in the book of Exodus, like the Sunday school flannel graph <laughs> can't compare to sometimes what we see. But there's a difference between as we, as a church, approach the word of God and what he says about who God is and who we are and how we relate to him. There's a difference between that and some, what our culture would say, some other co-equal myth about life that you could seek after and connect your life to. The difference is it's true, right? We believe the word of God is true. And the impact of it is that it is something we can bank on. It is something we can depend on. It is something we can, we can rest the weight in the entirety of our life upon. It's where... Truth meets our life in a way that it informs us of how we're to behave and how we're to respond instead of us bringing our own experience and our own life into what we want to see happen in our humanity and say, and try to inform that and say, I want to attach my life to this thing because it makes me feel comfortable or entertained or emotional today, and this is the way that I'm going. I think what we have to do as a culture, what we have to do as a church, is we need to readjust our perspective and say, we're going to let the word of God and what God says about who he is, who we are, and how we relate to him, we're going to let that inform our life about how we should behave and worship and act. Amen. I think that's important. We take a look at this passage and we see incredible themes. Something we see here that I think is important for us to, to look at is we see, in essence, 
this nation being formed, God calling a people to himself as we've walked through the book of Exodus, and these being his chosen people who he's redeemed out of Egypt, and as they've traveled through the desert, he's now interacting with them in a way that he is forming um, his relationship with his people, and he's setting the terms by which they're going to behave towards one another. And in essence, he's confirming in Exodus 24 his covenant with them, his covenant commitment. This word covenant is almost foreign to our culture today, is it not? What do we see in this covenant that he forms with his people? We see that in the ancient world, when a covenant was formed, they do some things. They made sacrifices. I think sometimes we read this depiction in Exodus 24 and we think, it's a little bit gross, right? Like they're killing animals, they're sprinkling blood on an altar, they're sprinkling blood on people. And if you think about it, this blood that was sprinkled on the people as they declared to God, we're going to do everything that you said. We see Moses coming down with the tablets, right, in the law, in, in the way that God wants to interact with, with his people as God is setting up really his theocracy where he will rule and reign over his people and they will relate to him. And he sets this up and they... They declare in their covenant with God as the elders go up the mountain and all the other people stay behind. And Moses goes even a little further to, to actually communicate and be in the presence of God. They declare that we will do everything that you've asked us to do. And that covenant is ratified with the sprinkling of blood on the altar to, to, to depict that, that God is going to live up to his end of the bargain and then it's sprinkled on the people as they declare that to say, listen, the stains on my face, the stains on my clothing of this sprinkled blood de declare that the sacrifice of this animal in the, in the, in the blood that's, that's to atone for where we've screwed up, what we're, what we're saying is we are committing to our end of the bargain that we're going to keep our covenant with you, God. And in essence, what they say in the sacrifice of that animal in the midst of that covenant is... Let me be like that animal should I violate what I've agreed to. It's a pretty powerful depiction, isn't it? What they actually did in making the covenant is cut the animal in half and walk between it to declare that I'm entering into an agreement with you and let me be like that animal should I, should I not live up to my end of the bargain. What a serious thing. I think the other thing that we can't begin to grasp in just reading Exodus 24 is how incredible the presence of God is. You remember in some prior passages as we talked about this, the people are scared, right? There is fear. There was a moment when the presence of God comes onto the mountain and the whole nation of Israel basically says to Moses, hey, look, how about you talk to God from now on, right? We don't really want to do that anymore because we're afraid we're going to die. So you go talk to God, and then you come back and tell us what he said. That was really the communication of the people to Moses, who in this passage we see becomes that mediator. There's an, an awfulness to it. There is an awesomeness to it, to the presence of God, where the idea is as sinful man to be in the presence of a holy, perfect, righteous, and a God who is just, which is very important for us. To be in his presence would mean certain death. 
And so you see the moment in this passage where, where they come and they actually have the covenant meal together, where they eat a portion of the animal that they've killed to signify this, this relationship and this covenant and this commitment to each other that we're going to live up to the law that you've declared, God, and you're going to live up to your end of the bargain where we will be your people, we'll be your children. And they have this meal and there's, there's an idea that they see a version of the presence of God. They really don't see him in his entirety because no human could. But what they see is his feet on, on a platform that almost looks as if it's sapphire. And it's, it's really a, a representation of who God is that he allows them to see when he has this meal with them. And they make this commitment together. And, and what, a, what an amazing commitment it is. What an amazing covenant it is. Because when God says something, I think this is something we need to see in the scripture today, that he's revealed is a part of his character that doesn't change. And it's important for us. When God says he's going to do something, he does it. God lives up to his word always. This covenant with Moses and with this people is an extension of his covenant that he's already made with Abraham. And he, he agrees and he covenants with people. What, what, what do we have in our culture that looks a little bit like that? It's supposed to be marriage, right? This idea of I am covenanting with you and I'm agreeing with you that we are going to uh, go from being two to being one. And we are going to be together and I'm, I'm in a covenant relationship with you unto death. And, and it's an idea of... Listen, we've made an agreement that we're going to live together and we are going to be a family and we're going to be in relationship with each other. And, and, and how, how interesting is it that it's so difficult in our culture to talk about covenant because even that's been watered down, right? I mean, the agreement's only good as long as I'm happy, right? This agreement is only good as long as it's working for me. I think that's where we've gotten to in our culture in terms of commitment. And what you see here is, is, may I be like that animal that just got cut in half? Should I violate the covenant that I've made with you? So the people have declared it. For us to really understand the implications of what this means for us, I think we've got to go to Hebrews 9. So turn there with me, if you would. Hebrews chapter 9. And what I'm realizing this morning is, uh, is in March I'm going to be 40, is that I can't read my Bible. I may need readers. I think I'm going to have to, I think I'm going to have to break down and buy some $6 readers and look like that guy that's got glasses at the end of his nose. Um, so I'm going to go with the cell phone right now. Go to Hebrews chapter 9 with me and go to verse 18. And you see the writer of Hebrews uh, takes a look at this passage in Exodus. And the writer of Hebrews says this in verse 18, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet, wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood of both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. I'm sorry, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then we would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed a man once to die, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Amen? So here's what we see. Take a look at this with me this morning. What we see is we see this covenant of God, but what it is is it's a copy. It's an imperfect copy, and for some 1,400 years, God had ordained that, that this would be depicted in the lives of the, of the Jewish people as they would go in and they would sacrifice an animal every year, and they would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat and on the, on the altar so that it would depict this, this idea of atonement. Here's what we recognize. When, when the people declared to, to God and to Moses, we will do everything that's commanded, here's what God understood, is that as an imperfect, sinful people who could never be in the presence of God, we could never do everything that was commanded, could we? Here's what we recognize in the whole of Scripture and is a theme that runs through the Bible, is that we are unable to do all the things that those people declared that they would do in that moment when the blood was sprinkled, that we fall short. As Paul says, everybody's good works, they're really like filthy rags. There's really no one who does good in Romans 3. No, not one. See, in our sinful state and in our inability to save ourselves, here's what we recognize. We fall desperately short, and we have sinned against a holy and a righteous and a perfect God who is just. Amen? Isn't it a good thing that he's just? I think it's hard for us to think about it because here's a God that they're afraid to even be in his presence, that Moses and Joshua have to go alone and then Moses even further because he's the only one allowed into his presence where he hikes almost six days into this cloud that's like a fiery inferno to be in the presence of God. And there's an idea that God, being completely just, cannot be in the presence of sinful man. Folks, the reality is, in the way that God is de declaring to us through his word and through this people over these years, he's declaring to us who he is and who we are and how we interact with him. And the reality is, we see it from Genesis 1 and 2, we see it from Exodus 34, we see it throughout scripture, we are sinful. We fall short. And here's the ultimate statement. We cannot save ourselves. And we should be grateful and altogether fearful of the idea that God is a God of justice. He is an awesome, great God of justice. 
We were talking about it this morning in Connecting Point. Because here's the reality of sin. It creates a debt. Sin creates a debt. Think about it. Has anything ever happened to you that has been uh, unjust? Something taken from you that, that someone else took that didn't belong to them. Something done to you that was perpetrated on you that you, that you say, that was wrong. This has created a debt in my life. Um, those of you that know, I, I, at the DA's office as a special victims prosecutor, I know I've said this to you before, but, but I see it depicted in front of me all the time. I, I sit with a, a young child who's been uh, just brutalized by some selfish uh, adult who has no ability to control themselves, and I look at this family or I look at the non-offending parent, and I think to myself, there is a debt that's been created here. Somebody needs justice. Has anybody felt like that before? Justice needs to happen in this situation. We see homicides in our community or other sorts of crimes or even just personal interaction between you and, and maybe someone you're close to where they offend you or they hurt you or they perpetrate something on you. And you look at it and you say, there's been a debt that's been created and something needs to be made right. How many of you are glad that God is a God of justice and he is going to make everything right? It's a great thing. But we have to get a little introspective here in the context of Hebrews 9 and the gospel. We've created a debt too. Talked about in Connecting Point, and I'm sorry for those of you who are there, I'm going to say it again. We, as, I look at the, as I look at the ultimate sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice that Hebrews 9 says isn't this animal that needs to be killed every year to atone for the debt or the sin of the people, but we see that as an imperfect type or a symbol Everything for that 1,400 years that we see them doing in the sacrifices the, is the high priest goes into the, into the tabernacle or into the temple and executes the sacrifice and sprinkles the blood of this perfect, innocent, spotless lamb that really doesn't deserve to be killed. As they kill that and they sprinkle this innocent blood on the mercy seat, and they say, God, could this atone for our sins this year and for everything we've done wrong? In every way that we have not lived up to this covenant and this commitment, can you forgive it as we make this sacrifice to try to make the debt better? It was all pointing to who? Jesus, who is the ultimate sacrifice who in Hebrews 9, they say, is, is a better sacrifice, isn't like these imperfect symbols in a tabernacle or in a temple. He didn't go into a place made by human hands to depict this need to make the debt right because of our sinfulness in, in, in every way that we've fallen short. But Jesus came, fully God, fully man. And, and, and as God sent his son to earth, he lived the perfect life none of us could live. And then he himself became the sacrifice that was so great, that was so perfect, it only needed to happen once. For all time. For all of us. Isn't that good news? Everything we see in Exodus 24 is pointing to Jesus, and everything after it is pointing back to him. The cross of Jesus Christ is the central moment in the history of the world where God came and he paid the debt for all of sin, saved up from Adam to the end of the world. And he did it, why? So you don't have to. And so I don't have to. Amen? We don't have to 
tie a rope to a priest's feet with some bells on it, just in case he dies, drops dead in the presence of God, they could pull him out as he would walk into the Holy of Holies with the blood of a spotless lamb that was sacrificed to sprinkle on the mercy seat because Jesus became that for us on our behalf. And I think introspectively, I need to take a moment this morning and think about that moment in Matthew 27 where you see Jesus going to the cross and you see the spotless lamb. And as you see him come into, in, other, in, in the other gospels, I believe in John, you see that his heart is troubled as he's heading towards the cross. And I have to almost think to myself, his heart shouldn't be troubled. Mine should be. He doesn't deserve this. I do. See, this is the perspective of the gospel we have to come with. And as we see this depicted in, in, in the scriptures, Jesus comes and he's falsely accused and he's falsely tried and, he's, um, and he stands before Pilate and he stands before all these people who just prior these people who had seen Lazarus raised from the dead were, were waving palm branches in front of him and worshiping him as he came in. They were declaring uh, that he was the Messiah. This is the same crowd of people now in Matthew 27 looking at the spotless lamb and saying, may his blood be on us and be on our children. We want him killed. We want him crucified. And Jesus stands there. And then one of the most remarkable things about Matthew 27, or the scriptures that depicts this moment, is there's not one word of protest, is there? Why? He doesn't say anything because he can't speak up and save himself and save us at the same time, can he? So he stands silent. And they beat him, and you know the story. You see the physical death that he incurred which is not the most excruciating pain that Jesus went through. And I think of myself. Please take a minute with me, and let's get introspective here. Who are you in this narrative? Can I tell you that I'm not Mary, and I'm not John, and I'm not anybody else in the narrative? The only place I can put myself is in that crowd calling for his crucifixion. Because when I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me, right? When I wasn't even looking for him, when I was rejecting him in my heart, rejecting him with my life, thinking I can do it my own way, he still died for me. He still sacrificed everything for me. Amen? And until we together understand the depth of our own sin, we don't have the opportunity to understand and experience the amazing grace that he gives us. Folks, the gospel and this depiction in Exodus 24 as we look into Hebrews 9 declares to us that we need to come to an end of ourselves. We need to recognize, listen, you can't save yourself. I can't save myself. I need to recognize I need him to pay a debt for me. I need him to be that final sacrifice. Amen? The reality of the death is actually kind of brutal to think about.
but he was, in essence, butchered for us. And as he hung there, you hear not a word of protest. You hear them jarring at him. If you're the son of God, save yourself. Come down. And can I tell you that I don't think, I think it's within the context of Scripture that all of heaven and all of the angels of heaven are watching and, and focused in on this moment at this very time and are on the edge of whatever their seat may be as they watch the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God become what we see in Exodus 24, become this sacrifice, this atonement for us. And it would have only taken one word and they would have wiped out the entire Roman cohort, wouldn't they? But he couldn't save himself and save us at the same time. So he became that sacrifice. Out of the seven cries from the cross, we see one that seems a little like a protest. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what we recognize in this moment is that the God of the universe, that the, the spotless lamb, the final sacrifice for us, had experienced something that nobody else has ever experienced. We, we recognize in this moment that the excruciating pain wasn't necessarily the physical, as many people were crucified. But what we realize is that he, in this moment, becomes sin for us. That he, in this moment, experiences separation from God. God turns his back on him, and he becomes the object by which God pours out all of his wrath for sin, all of his anger and judgment as a just God who needs justice for the wrongs that have been done, saved up from Adam to the end of the world. Those are poured out on Jesus in that moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced the forsaking of God as he became sin for us why? So we don't have to. Listen, listen to what we now get to say. My God in heaven will never leave me and never forsake me. Amen? He was forsaken, so I don't have to be. So you don't have to be. What we see in Hebrews 9, demonstrated in symbol from Exodus 24, is that Jesus became the final sacrifice. And we see later on in Hebrews 12 that he sat down at the right hand of the Father declaring what? It is finished. It's over. It's done. He has paid for all of it. Amen? So we have a new covenant. We have a new covenant, and here's what we get to say as Christians that's different than any other system of religion on the face of the planet. Here's what we get to say. When you walk out of this place, you don't have to do a list of good things, a list of rules, a list of do's and don'ts written on these tablets. You don't have to do them to somehow earn brownie points with God, to somehow be good enough, to somehow be disciplined enough, to somehow be nice enough, to somehow earn your way to a place where God would look upon you favorably. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here's what you get to say in this place this morning right now. He did it all for me, and I can't even add to it. But I am so grateful so impacted by the amazing grace of a God who would sacrifice himself and pay himself for my debt that I would be declared innocent because his blood would spill, was spilled. 
Now I walk into that covenant of his spilt blood and I declare, I want to worship you with my life. I want to declare to everybody and to you, God, that I am so grateful for what you've done for me that I want to live a life that's different. I want to treat my wife better. I want to raise my kids better. I want to work harder in my job. I want to be more loving and more forgiving to other people, not because somehow it earns for me your favor, but because you already love me and I just want to be like you. Amen? Because you already did it all, and I want to respond with worship, because you deserve to be worshiped, not just when I sing on a Sunday morning, but when I go to work, but when I'm at home, but when I'm interacting with other people, and declare the glory of God to the people around us, that we're not some arrogant people that think we're better than everybody else, pointing in their face and telling them all the things we're against. That's garbage. That's not Christianity, and that's not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a group of people that are, are infused with a humility that comes from knowing you're sinful and you can't save yourself, but God did it for you. And I'm in the same boat as every other human being sucking oxygen on planet Earth. I'm in the same boat as they are, but the grace of God is in my life. And I'm different because of him, not because of anything I've done. Because he sacrificed for me. Amen? How can I not forgive someone else who wrongs me? When, when what I've done put him on the cross, how can I look at the face of someone else who owes me a debt and not forgive? This is easier said than done, but in the context of the gospel, there is nothing that anybody else can do to you that you haven't already done worse to God and been forgiven for. Let the gospel of Jesus Christ wash over your life and give your heart the ability to forgive. And walk in the freedom of that. Walk in the freedom of it. That you're released from that debt that even someone else owes you because Jesus forgave you. Amen? Here's what we want to be. In this church, we want to be people that, personally, there was a man named C.J. Mahaney, a pastor from D.C. who had started a church, a lot of churches. He's one of my favorite preachers. He said once at a retreat I was at when I was in college, preach the gospel to yourself every morning. Here's what we want to be. We want to be a people consumed with a personal understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let that melt away and change our hearts and change the way we live and interact with each other. And then we can be a group of people together that display the glory of God as we worship together as a church. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. That you were the better sacrifice you, like the symbols that were depicted throughout the history of the Jewish people, like these animals that were sacrificed, like the way they worshipped in the tabernacle and in the temple, that you became, you were what that was always pointing to. That we live in a covenant today after your sacrifice where it's finished. Where you don't have to be 
sacrificed over and over again, but it was once and for all. And our prayer this morning is that you would help us respond to it. That we would recognize that your love in this is true. It's objective. It's not a movie. It's not a myth. It's not some other storyline that we can attach our lives to and be motivated by. But it is the truth. And it's objective. And no matter how we feel subjectively, we can reach outside of that and hold on to the truth of the cross of Jesus Christ. Even if I don't feel like it today, I know you love me because of the cross. I know you love me because you died. Even if I don't feel like it today, I know I'm forgiven because you did it and it happened and it doesn't change. I am grateful that your love for me is not based on my performance, but it's based on your choice. You decided to love me. Now help me to walk in the covenant of grace that I would respond and worship you from a life that's grateful. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Will you 